listening to In Situ Science. Each episode, we meet a different scientist to find out what they do and why they do it. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode, I'm joined by microbiologist, geneticist, and science communicator, Dr. Heather Hendrickson. Heather, thanks for joining me. Thanks, James. Good to be here. Now, I want to ask straight up about your interesting experience this morning. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you did a Reddit Ask Me Anything. I did. How were the masses of the internet? Good. Um, there were there were a few comments that I just didn't address, um, but <laughs> for the most part, um, the public was asking really interesting questions about um, antibiotic resistance, which of course is on the rise, mm-hmm. um, I, and about how we use antibiotics and how we can try to preserve antibiotics, mm-hmm. and also this sort of interesting idea that we are interested in around here, uh, which is the idea of bacteriophage therapy. So can you use the viruses that infect bacterial cells mm-hmm. as therapeutic agents in human medicine? So viruses infecting bacterial cells. I mean, my immediate thought is we use sort of viruses in vaccinations and things. Mm-hmm. Is it a similar idea that you put something non-virulent? The mechanism is completely different. Okay. So when... So first of all, I should say, and I don't get to say this that often, but (laughs) bacteriophage therapy is something that has been practiced in the world for like the last 80 years. So Mm -hmm. even during like World War I, there were soldiers on the field that had little vials that were full of bacteriophages. Mm -hmm. So if they got um, a serious injury, they would be able to treat themselves Mm -hmm. um, because they had these little cocktails, basically, of different types of bacteriophages that would be able to kill bacterial pathogens that they might encounter. And so the idea here is basically that if you have a particular bacteria and it's an infectious organism and you have a bacteriophage that's able to destroy that particular bacterial Mm -hmm. cell, then the bacteriophage is very specific and it latches on to just that type of cell and it injects its DNA. Almost like, um, so bacteriophage is shaped, they're really interesting little critters, um, but they're basically shaped a little bit like a cross between like a spaceship and a spider. <laughs> yeah. <Got laughs> Which it. doesn't sound creepy at all, right? <laughs> so what they do is they, they, they use a little spider appendages to kind of grab onto a bacterial cell that's specific to them. Yeah. And then they inject their DNA. And that DNA is able to get into the bacterial cell and basically take over the machinery of that cell. Mm -hmm. And the bacteriophage, just with its DNA, is able to make maybe as many as 100 copies of itself in as little as 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. And then those bacteriophages produce a different type of protein from the, the DNA that was originally injected that allows them to lyse the cell, meaning the cell breaks open. Yeah. And then the bacteriophages are released. And each one of those individual bacteriophages can then go start that process again. Mm-hmm. So if you're thinking about um, bacteriophages as a therapeutic, um, you can think about like, you know, imagine one of those soldiers and he gets a really terrible burn. Mm-hmm. But he has this cocktail of bacteriophages that are able to kill pathogens if they're maybe E. coli pathogens mm-hmm. or say Pseudomonas pathogens. Yeah. And he can spread that cocktail of bacteriophages on his arm where he's burned in order to try to fight any infectious organisms that Mm -hmm. he might come in contact with. And so that's really the idea. So it has the same 
effect or it's the same goal as antibiotics. It's killing bacteria. Except that like bacteriophages begin because of that specificity that I mentioned. Mm. They they will only target the bacteria that they are supposed to be targeting. It's biological warfare. It is. <laughs> so was antibiotics, right? Like <laughs> antibiotics, um, they've actually dug up bits of permafrost <laughs> way up where there've never been presumably antibiotics. And even like 5,000 years ago in these ice cores, they found lots of bacteria that already had resistance genes. All right. And that is, of course, because bacteria for probably billions of years, have been manufacturing antibiotics mm -hmm. and so have other microorganisms like fungi and um, other types of little dudes manufacturing antibiotics. And then the bacteria is counter defense have been manufacturing ways of combating those antibiotic resist the, with antibiotic resistance genes. Mm -hmm. So there's this like huge battleground mm. going on in basically all of the soil everywhere around us mm. um, between different organisms. And bacteriophages are just another part of that big, mm -hmm. um, you can almost think of it like a grand um, Game of Thrones <laughs> style, <laughs> you know, huge warring factions all around us yeah. and in, our, in us even, right? Like, so on you, in you, in the milk <laughs> that you drink, in the water and the soil that we play on. I mean, it's just, this is taking place everywhere. Mm. Um, it's just knowing how to use it to our advantage. Exactly. And anyway. that's the thing that's really cool about phage therapy is that in Russia and in Georgia, so basically behind the Iron Curtain, <laughs> they continued using bacteriophages. And even today, <laughs> this is active kind of therapeutic that's used mm. in those countries. So there are, they have a lot of um, information and a huge stockpiles of different types of bacteriophages that they've been um, using as medicine mm -hmm. in those places. And of course, on the other side of the um, Iron Curtain, uh, we in England initially uh, discovered antibiotics mm -hmm. and started producing them. But, that, but those two kinds of medicine kind of went in their separate directions. Mm. So the consequences that we're facing now in terms of the, the amounts, the sheer quantities of antibiotics that we've been using in all sorts of different industries. So in medicine and in agriculture and aquaculture and all of these different types of yeah. um, arenas of, of human pursuit, we've been using these antibiotics, which are really these weapons. Mm. And we've been encouraging the increase of the um, copies of those genes in all of the different bacteria and in the environment. Yeah that are able to defend against those antibiotics. Mm -hmm. So with antibiotics, we're kind of taking, it's right to say a shotgun approach to things where you just put out this agent that's gonna kill lots of different things and then we're only left over with and one individuals of the that can grow. survive that, whereas bacteriophage therapy is really specific. Yeah, and so I guess the, the other that reason that that's possibly a really powerful way of approaching medicine is that in the last, you know, maybe five to 10 years, we've been hearing incredible things about how important the bacteria in our guts are, mm -hmm. right? So um, we're just at the tip really of understanding how the bacteria that we have inside of us mm -hmm. that we've gotten from our mothers when we were born and from breastfeeding and from our environments that we've kind of collected this, this population of bacteria that are, that are doing really great things for us. So they're helping us digest things and they're, um, they're, they're affecting our emotions in ways that we don't quite <laughs> understand yet. There's a whole world of 
what we think is about 30 trillion bacterial mm. cells inside of every human being. And how they're working together and how they're affecting us is still something that we're working on trying to understand. And we see new things in the headlines all the time that just sound mm. incredible. But when you take an antibiotic, it's almost like, and I've, I've said this before, but it's almost like you're unleashing like a nuclear bomb <laughs> in that ecosystem. Mm. And we don't really know what the long-term consequences of those kinds of things are. Mm. But if I use a bacteriophage or something that's quite specific, then I'm only killing the tiny, tiny fraction of bacteria that are inside of my body that are mm. actually being pathogens and producing toxins. So that kind of targeting, I think, is both like a blessing in bacteriophage therapy or the idea of bacteriophage therapy. It also makes it a little bit harder, right? You can't just pop a pill. Mm -hmm. It means you have to find the bacteriophage that's appropriate for the bacterial infection that you have. Yeah. I mean, my, my personal claim to fame is I got a <laughs> antibiotic resistant clostridium Ooh. once, which is great. It was great fun. What did you have to do? <laughs> I had to sit in hospital for a long time until they found out what it was. Wow. And then they could administer something. So I got food poisoning in Thailand, which is what every good Australian does <laughs> when they travel. And in the Thai hospital, they just pumped me full of antibiotics. And apparently, if it happened in Australia, they wouldn't have done that yeah. because of the risk of... Of developing an, an, yeah. an infection that is actually resistant to all those yeah. antibiotics. You know, one of the reasons that that kind of thing can happen so easily is because of this phenomenon that takes place in nature called horizontal gene transfer. Mm -hmm. So bacteria are able to do this kind of, um, what, what I think is really an incredible thing, and that is, you know, so, so you and I, we, if we have mutations... And if our mutations are in our germlines, then we might pass those on to our offspring. Mm -hmm. um, bacteria don't only evolve in that way. So they don't just evolve through that kind of linear mutation route. Yeah. But they can actually exchange huge chunks of DNA across species boundaries. So they're not just passing genes on to their offspring. They're just passing genes to other Exactly. Individual cells. And that those can be them. like them. Those can be like, oh, I'm an E. coli and I can pass genes to another E. coli. But that mm -hmm. would almost be like sex, right? Yeah. But they can also pass those to Staphylococcus or Ooh. Streptococcus or Klebsiella. <laughs> so across like completely unrelated bacteria, if one of them has something like a toxin mm. or an antibiotic resistance gene, they have the capacity, and these, these processes primarily, for the most part, take place by accident. Mm -hmm. but, but gene transfer is taking place in nature all the time at rates that we don't really understand. Yeah. Um, because it's difficult to know how often it's happened and how often it, was, it happened and then it was good. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. And so, so there are lots of reasons not to just, you know, put huge amounts of antibiotics <laughs> on an individual person. Um, one of the other things that's really interesting about your story, though, is there's this, um, <laughs> have you heard about the good word of fecal transplantation? <laughs> Elaborate, have please. You heard this? I love this. I, uh, I don't know anybody who's actually gone through it. Um, but, and, and actually, if you talk to medical doctors, they say that they've kind of known about this for a long time. Mm -hmm. But in the last, um, maybe three, three or two or three years, there was a paper published in the Journal of um, 
the American Medical Association, I think, mm -hmm. where they saw that in cases where people had that kind of clostritis, that kind of um, Clostridium difficile infection, mm -hmm. Um, it is, ex it is, it, I've heard it's excruciating. <laughs> so I've heard it's, it's pretty bad. <laughs> pretty much one of the worst things that you can imagine. But what they found was that um, what has pr probably taken place in many of those instances is that the antibiotics that were administered kind of destroyed the microbiome that was supposed to be there. Mm -hmm. And part of what our microbiome does, along with, you know, maybe a lot of other things, is there are bacteria that take up niches like ecological niches and mm -hmm. spaces inside of our guts and when we use an antibiotic or a whole you know swath of antibiotics as, as uh, your clinicians did in your case then we we destroy a lot of those guys who are really our old friends yeah like these are our bacteria that are protecting our gut from pathogens like clostridium and so if you get rid of them at the same time that you're trying to get rid of an infection like that mm. then you sometimes lose that protective effect and so what they found was that they took two populations of people, very small sample size in this particular study. I can't remember if it was like, it was 20 people or something in mm. either hand that had that kind of infection. And in one case, they gave them antibiotics. Um, I think a simple course of antibiotics, if I'm not mistaken. And in the other course, they did fecal transplantation. And so the way that they did this... Yes, that's the nuts and bolts <laughs> of fecal transplantation. Um, so this is my understanding, is that you take... Um, usually a relative or somebody close by that your microbiomes are um, our microbiomes are most similar to our own microbiomes most recently but anyone who has either similar genetics as us or shares a household with us mm -hmm. also has similar microbiomes to our own yeah so they'll take usually a relative not necessarily their microbiome um, by which I mean a fecal sample or poop, poop. if you will yeah <laughs> Uh, and what they do is they take all of the junk out of it and they just get out the bacteria. Mm -hmm. They And you can either administer those bacteria to someone. So you want to get those bacteria yeah. through the person's body and mm -hmm. down to that lower intestine. And you can either do that by intubating them. So you mm -hmm. can put a tube where you just start shoving bacteria down this tube. <laughs> but there are problems with that in terms of like sometimes the tubes go awry and you don't want to end up with bacteria in the wrong place, mm -hmm. especially lower intestine bacteria. Um, and they've even found that you can make little tiny pills mm -hmm. and you can just take 30 pills one day and 30 pills the next day that are full of these bacteria and they just dissolve um, after getting through most of the gut and then they, they are able to repopulate the gut. And what they found in this study that I mentioned was that, I'm, I'm not going to remember the exact number right now, but it was like over 90 percent of the people that received this fecal transplantation recovered without antibiotics right. and the people who were getting antibiotics instead they actually for um for health reasons couldn't really continue that part of the trial because they were so unsuccessful yeah. so this is the type of infection that's incredibly difficult to fight with something like antibiotics mm. but by using something as simple as the bacteria that belong in our gut mm we can really heal people from this like completely horrible sounding infection. Yeah. So, um, I mean, is the fact that it has the word fecal in it, does that turn people off? <laughs> well, you know what? I think the, you can tell me. It's just bacteria that's getting transferred, just to clarify. It's just bacteria. Yeah. So you clear out all the other stuff. Yeah. You use a blender as, as <laughs> in all the best of experiments in yeah. molecular biology. Um, 
yeah, you're just transferring the bacteria and that might still have a little bit of an ick factor. But my understanding is that if you have gone through this kind of infection and you're looking at your prognosis, I mean, sometimes these people, they are really suffering mm. and they are suffering some, I mean, your instance, you were very lucky to have recovered the way that you did, mm. but, um, I mean, I later find out that there are several fatalities from this sort of stuff. Yeah, this is a really serious, I mean, <laughs> like, year, you know. the, the infection is incredibly serious. The consequences mm. for people can be very serious, especially if those bacteria, um, if the infection um, gets into the rest of the body. Mm. Um, but the, the symptoms are so horrible mm. that the idea of swallowing a few poop pills generally doesn't <laughs> turn people yep, off because they're really um, in a situation where they're suffering. <laughs> suffering. So the progress that people have made in that kind of medicine is remarkable. Mm. And I guess it's kind of, I mean, I, I don't usually think about these things in the same um, breath, but if you think about starting to recognize the power and the significance of the microbial communities inside and, and on us mm -hmm. in our own health, then I think that it starts to become a little bit less strange to think about swallowing a vial of bacteriophages mm. or smearing them on your arm in order to help yourself um, recover from an infection. So how would something like this compare to just your regular over-the-counter probiotic sort of benefits? You mean the, the fecal transplant? Yeah. So the the thing about probiotics right now, there, there are instances where there have been good clinical trials to show us the benefits of taking a particular um, probiotic. Yeah. But the truth of the matter is that most of the bacteria, first of all, I mean, most of the bacteria in the world, we haven't found ways of culturing, right? Mm -hmm. um, there's this um, number that gets kind of thrown around, which is, 99%. So maybe 99% yeah. of the bacteria in the world, we are unable to culture. Mm -hmm. um, and what I mean by that is we can't make a laboratory soup that yeah. they think is delicious that they'll grow in. Yeah. That's certainly true of a lot of the bacteria in our gut. So they are mostly anaerobic, mm -hmm. meaning even the, a whiff of oxygen and they're dead. <laughs> mm. So they're, they're in an environment where we can't take them out, culture them one at a time, put them back and see what the effects are. Mm -hmm. So the consequences of that are that it is very difficult when we look at the 30 trillion bacteria that are in your gut <laughs> to know which ones are really making a difference and at what point in your life. Mm. Um, a lot of them are probably important for one another. Yeah. So the longer microorganisms evolve together in a really tiny little environment, mm -hmm. the more they start kind of, um, I guess I would say like separating out their household duties, right? Like, so somebody's going to take out the trash and somebody else is going to do the dishes. Yeah. <laughs> so they start relying on one another the longer they live together. Mm -hmm. Um, and these, I think, have been kind of evolving these cooperative, these cooperative patterns for yeah. a really long time. So you can't just take one out and grow it and then see what it does or mm -hmm. see what it makes. Because unless you're growing it with 20 other bacterial strains, it'll just sit there. Yeah, you need a um, whole ecosystem. Yeah. Really. So I, I 
I'm not an expert on probiotics, mm-hmm. but I don't very often come across studies that convince me that if I <laughs> if I consume this single bacterium, then you know my hair will be glossier and my eyes will be shinier, <laughs> and uh, you know I'll feel better about um, my neighbors. You know all of those kinds of effects that people will kind of um, ascribe. Mm-hmm. to a, taking a particular probiotic. So I'm I'm waiting for the day that I can take my happiness pill and it'll just be like my little <laughs> microbial friend. Um, but I think, I think we've got a little bit of work to do before we're quite there. So what's stopping us then? We know the dangers of antibiotics. We know we've got these alternatives, either using your naturally occurring bacteria or bacteriophages. Yeah. Don't we just flick a switch and and change the way we do medicine? No, unfortunately. um, So in terms of, well, you know, I I don't know how common fecal transplantation is at this point. Mm -hmm. I know that there are a few people um, in New Zealand who have had it done. I know that clearly they've done these clinical trials in the United States. We've all got a weird friend who's tried it. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Actually, (laughs) I had somebody at my house um, for dinner this last week, and he was like, I've got a kid. She's never had antibiotics. I'm going to do it myself. (laughs) (laughs) The blender, right? Yeah. (laughs) So maybe that's true. Maybe we've all got that friend that's like, I'm just, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. Sounds trivial. It's no problem. There's probably a, a, there's probably a wiki how on it online by now. It would really appeal to sort of umbly gumbly, you know, I'm going to try cupping and I'm going to try ear candling and there you go. Try fecal transplant. What could possibly go wrong? Um, Yeah. So I don't know how much that's happening. Yeah. Um, in terms of, of using it for therapies, because there have been some clinical trials, I think, well, I hope that the medical establishment is moving in a direction where they recognize the power of that kind of um, use. And, and it sounds to me, based on what I'm reading online, like that's di- the direction we're going with fecal transplantation. Like this is clearly helping people. Now we have to figure out how to make it bigger. Like yeah. how is it possible to just take um, fecal samples from a, a set of a hundred people that we know are disease free. Mm-hmm. And will those fecal samples be beneficial to a large number of other individuals? Mm-hmm. So I think that's, that's the direction that that's probably going. Um, in terms of bacteriophage therapy, um, as I said, this is, this is something that happens right now in Russia and Georgia in the United States, bacteriophages are approved for use on ready to eat food items and in manufacturing plants mm-hmm. in order to keep down the numbers of regular um, pathogens. I have never seen a press release from any factory that says, oh, by the way, did you know <laughs> we're using phage therapy, spreading viruses all over our factory um, <laughs> to keep pathogens at bay. Like I, I am not aware of companies that are doing that right now, but I know that that is legal. Um, in terms of bacteriophages for medicine, there are a lot of, there is a lot that we're going to have to do before most of Western medicine is going to feel comfortable embracing that as a therapeutic. Partly we need some controlled blind clinical trials. Mm -hmm. Um, there is actually one that's taking place at the moment in France called phago burn, where -hmm. they're doing basically that thing that I was talking about earlier. So they've taken... Um, burn patients, and they've either given them some kind of an antibiotic, I believe, although that could be incorrect, or they've given them a phage cocktail in a bandage. And -hmm. they're looking at whether or not they see a better outcome for patients that have received a phage therapy um, than they're seeing in the case of antibiotics. Yeah. So that's ongoing. That's exactly the kind of research that we need. Yeah. In addition to that, 
the truth is, um, well, there, there are going to be other um, issues, like how do you administer it? Um, mm-hmm. So when you take bacteriophages internally, your kidneys are naturally going to clean out a lot of those particles. Mm-hmm. So you either have to load up and keep loading up, or you have to evolve the bacteriophages so that they avoid being cleaned out by the kidneys. Yeah. Um, other issues, yeah, there are always issues with administration. So like if you have a very deep bone infection, you might mm-hmm. have to drill in order to get the bacteriophages to the right site. Yeah. And that kind of thing has certainly happened in some cases of treatment that have turned out to be successful. Um, but last not, but not least, um, the, the people who have practiced bacteriophage therapy for a long time, first of all, they haven't been writing in, in, in English. So <laughs> they have a huge amount of things that they've probably learned that we are not able to expose ourselves to. All right. And that's a shame. But second of all, they've also developed a huge catalog of bacteriophages that they have, that they know how they work. Mm-hmm. And we, haven't, we don't have access to that yet. So, what, so just there, politically? Or? I think, well, I think, you know, politically there are things that need to happen. Mm-hmm. Right now it is very easy for um, the USDA or the um, Food and Drug Administration, in the United States at least, to say, okay, we understand what kinds of clinical trials need to take place in order for a single antibiotic to be approved for use in the market. Mm-hmm. What do you do with bacteriophages? Because mm-hmm. even if you got a single strain of bacteriophages through that entire process, mm-hmm. you wouldn't want to administer that to most people because it's probably not going to be effective against their their bacterial strain that they're infected with. Mm-hmm. What you really want is what the Russians and, and Georgians have, is this huge catalog of bacteriophages. And then you are able to test the, the pathogen against a bunch of different bacteriophages, find a set of them that work, put those together as a cocktail, and that's what you administer. So we're not built from a regulatory standpoint to approve things that A, are entities that are made out of protein and DNA rather than a chemical, Mm -hmm. B, self-replicating. I can't even tell you what happens to all the bacteriophages after you administer them. Mm -hmm. And um, last but not least, they change over time. So bacteriophages are going to evolve. Mm-hmm. Right. And bacteria are going to evolve. So there's a lot of research that we need to do. And that's going to take a lot of resources. And ideally, what we really need is a way of bringing together people that do what we do, which is bacteriophage hunting, together with institutions that are developing um, bacteriophage therapies we need better understanding in um, public regulatory offices in order to understand, you know, what would we need in terms of regulation if we were going to try to use phage therapy around the world, mm-hmm. and just better communication between all of these entities, and of course a public understanding of what a bacteriophage is. So I have to ask, bacteriophage hunting. What, how, how do you do that? What, this is step what one. we do. <laughs> okay, so um, I guess there are two things. Um, So about four years ago now, I took a group of undergraduates here at Massey University and that we did our very first phage hunt here um, at at my institution. Mm -hmm. And so basically what you do is you take a group of students and you send them out into the world and they each bring back 12 to 20 soil samples. Mm -hmm. 
you pick a bacterium of interest that mm -hmm. you want to see if you can find bacteriophages to fight. Mm -hmm. And we specifically chose a strain of Pseudomonas that was a relatively safe, um, non-pathogenic strain because we were exposing bacteria, uh, undergraduates, which are not bacteria, we were, expo <laughs> we were exposing <laughs> undergraduates to these bacteria. Yeah. So we chose an, a non-pathogenic strain of Pseudomonas and basically the students took their soil samples, put a bunch of water in them mm -hmm. with some salts and some calcium chloride, and then they filter so that all of the particles, except for the very tiniest particles, like virus-sized like virus particles. particles, would be screened out. Mm -hmm. And then they took a tiny fraction of what they got out of that, and they combined that with the bacteria, and mm -hmm. they spread it on a, on a plate, on an agar plate. Mm -hmm. So the bacteria grow up, and in every place where a bacteriophage has landed that can infect one of those bacteria, they make a little death zone. <laughs> and the death zone overnight expands and expands and expands as each one of those bacteriophages that come out of one infection, each one of them hits another set of bacterial cells mm. and then they do it again. And yep. so you might be amplifying by a hundred times every time they go through that cycle. So what you end up with is either a little, little tiny death zone or a really big death zone. Mm -hmm. um, and those are called plaques. So if the students find plaques, then they've got an indication they have a bacteriophage, and then they can go on to the next steps of purifying. Mm -hmm. But that process of just taking the soil sample and looking for plaques takes like 24 hours. Yeah, it takes great. hardly any time at all. So if mm -hmm. you take a group of undergraduate students, and now we, this actually is our first year we're going to have a class here at Massey University called bacteriophage discovery and genomics. <laughs> so I'll take a group of maybe 10 or 12 students. They'll go out into the world and find, um, in this case, soil samples. And this year, or actually last year, we joined the Howard Hughes Medical Institute's phage hunting program. Mm -hmm. So we, we've left Pseudomonas behind. That has now become an interest of the Hendrickson lab, mm -hmm. but no longer part of the, the class that we're running. Now we're looking for mycobacteriophages. Mm -hmm. So the Howard Hughes Medical Institute has a science education alliance for phage hunting. Yeah. And they have in this project found, mostly in the United States, but there's a smattering of bacteriophages that they've found around the globe, including now we found two in New Zealand. Um, they have found over a thousand bacteriophages in this project. And that is the most sequenced of any group of bacteriophages. <laughs> but what that, that means is that we've got this incredible library. So we have all of these bacteriophages, both have been discovered and they've been put into a database mm -hmm. um, and they've been put into a collection in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and they've all been sequenced. All and right. our undergraduate students get to go through the process of taking the DNA for the bacteriophages that they have discovered and named, and they get to find all of the genes in the bacteriophage. Mm -hmm. And that's awesome because this is the DNA era, right? Like yeah. It has gotten to the point where it is super cheap and super fast to sequence anything. And these students that have gone through this class have not only found entities that might help us one day, you know, destroy mycobacterium tuberculosis or mm -hmm. mycobacterium something else, but they've also learned how to find, how to handle DNA how to find genes in DNA and how to use publicly available databases and software in mm -hmm. order to identify what those genes are. So the students go through two semesters 
and they learn a huge number of really cool skills, yeah. both in like molecular biology and microbiology, but also just these really great genetic skills where mm. they learn all about DNA and, and what's in DNA. So it's a great class. I mm. wish I could take the class. <laughs> <laughs> I get to sit there. Um, I still haven't named any bacteriophages, but we're really, <laughs> um, we're super stoked to be part of the program. Um, and the, the students, it's just, it's really fun to see the students go th through this process of really discovering something that's completely brand new. And they've basically, they, these are bacteriophages that have really never been seen before. Mm. And you can, the cool thing is seeing how similar they are to bacteriophages that infect the same organism that were isolated in like Detroit, <laughs> right? I mean, like, it's a pretty, it's a pretty cool thing, so. So you, along with your research, you do a lot of teaching, mm -hmm. a lot of outreach, mm -hmm. and a lot of science communication. You've become the sort of face of microbiology, at least here in New Zealand, right? Well, I, there, I certainly have some colleagues that are also up there in the face of <laughs> microbiology category. Um, I guess I think of um, Stephen Pointing and, and uh, Susie Wiles are both mm -hmm. like also very prominent science communicators mm -hmm. here in New Zealand that are super keen on microbes. How but I like find... to think of us as a trifecta. <laughs> Good team. <laughs> Good team. <laughs> How did you find yourself in this position? Um, yeah. Does it just happen? Well, I, you know, so I came from a family. It's funny. Somebody, um, somebody said this to my partner at one point. Um, I came from a very religious conservative family in the oh, United really? States. Um, so my family is um, predominantly Mormon, mm -hmm. so Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or LDS. Um, and the thing that was really funny was somebody said, oh yeah, the Mormons, they're really proselytizing. They're like, that's what Mormons do, right? <laughs> is they kind of like go door to door and talk about their religion and how awesome it is. Um, and I'm not, I'm not Mormon anymore. Now I'm an atheist. Uh, but now I'm like a proselytizing microbiologist yeah. instead of a proselytizing Mormon. Um, and I've got to say, like, like the, the things that... They, I, I went through a huge amount of like... Um, giving talks when I was a kid, mm -hmm. um, mostly about Jesus. <laughs> and um, my family, we had um, family home evenings every Monday, and my dad would have each one of us kids stand up in front of the rest of the family and give talks about mm -hmm. faith or whatever. And it was always really important to him that we could communicate. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, maybe sometimes to his chagrin, um, but I think generally he's pretty proud of me these days. Like I'm, I'm now able to use those skills mm. as, um, someone who communicates about the, the thing that I'm passionate about today, mm. which is about microbiology and, um, science. And so I think it's, it's been kind of funny to me, uh, and probably to my family that, <laughs> I, um, instead of giving, you know, sermons or whatever, <laughs> instead of going door to door, I'm now, um, I've really like taken that set of skills that was so important to my family mm. and used it in the only way that I know how. I have heard it said that the best way to raise an atheist is to give him a religious education. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, I, um, yeah. I, uh, I can't say that everybody in the family has become an atheist, but uh, if that was the idea, they, they certainly it worked on me. <laughs> so. It's funny, there are just 
there, there are scientists who really just don't enjoy talking or communicating. And you know, when I've been running around approaching people for this podcast, people, some people just run and hide. Yeah. And have no interest in it. I, um, I guess I, and I, you know, I'm certainly not the first science communicator to say something mm. like this, but um, we, as scientists, really, we rely on our institutions and, and we rely on the public to give us funding. Mm -hmm. um, all of the work that I'm able to do here, and I've got to say, like, I have been running a laboratory here at Massey University for three years, mm -hmm. and I am still blown away by how lucky I am to have a job <laughs> like this. Um, I get to, you know, discover bacteriophages with students, but we, the other things that we do in my laboratory involve studying the evolution of bacteria and the, the mechanisms by which bacteria either exchange DNA, um, we're studying the evolution of cell shape, so how do bacteria go from being rod-like to spherical. Mm -hmm. I love my job. Mm. And the the fact that I have this job is completely due to the fact that we that we get money from the government and we get money from our institutions mm -hmm. and so if that's if that's where our funding is coming from then it's really on us to explain both to our institutions and to the public and mm -hmm. to the government what we're doing and why it's interesting um, and so I really think that's our job mm -hmm. like I, I consider that to be part of that's part of the job. <laughs> I mean, it sounds, it sounds obvious when you put it like that, but it's strange that you do still find scientists and academics who feel like any time not spent doing research is yeah. time wasted. And or I maybe totally, a little bit, you know, below them or depending I, on their personality. I do understand feeling that way. And I mean, I think the thing to remember is that for some people, this kind of communication is fun. Hmm. And I know that not all scientists are like that. And maybe that's another reason to do this, right? Is we've had this idea for a long time that scientists have a particular type of personality and that if you have if you have a really extroverted personality, mm. then science is not for you. Um, I certainly had an experience... Oh, <laughs> do I tell this story? Go on. Go on. <laughs> so when I was um, a very young woman interested in science. I was also a married Mormon choir director living mm. in Salt Lake City, Utah. <laughs> That's quite a conservative place. Yeah. And I had, at the time, at least, he was quite a conservative husband. Mm -hmm. I'm now a very happily divorced <laughs> atheist living in New Zealand. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we'd gotten married very young, yeah. um, which is not uncommon in that um, in that uh, community, I ended up getting divorced when I was 25. Mm -hmm. But when I was about 23, I was really getting interested in science. And mm -hmm. I had actually joined a microbiology laboratory at the University of Utah. Mm -hmm. And I, at first, I, I had actually been hired um, almost by accident, really. Um, I was an undergraduate and I was working on, I was an undergraduate biology major. I wanted to work around more biologists. I'd been working in the library, so I applied to work in the biology counseling office. Mm -hmm. and they did not hire me, oh. which was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> um, because then that set of applications of people who didn't get that job got transferred to a genetics laboratory. Right. And the person who was running the genetics laboratory was a woman named Sherry Roth. 
And Sherry was looking for an undergraduate student to build databases for her and um, like purchasing databases and to handle the purchasing and to build a genetics database. Mm -hmm. And they looked at my application and they came in and interviewed me and it all went really well and I was hired. What I didn't realize at the time was that John Roth, uh, who's a National Academy of Science member in the United States, um, was the head of that laboratory, and he was working on this aspect of microbial evolution that I had read about in Scientific American and was completely intrigued by. Mm. And so, so John and Sherry hired me, and I just sort of fell into research. Like, mm. John came in one day talking about this thing called adaptive evolution, and I was like, oh, I've read about this. And he kind of looked at me sideways. <laughs> this is like, this is the new database person? Are you a biology major? And he basically, at that point, like, dragged me physically into the laboratory. Um, and I have just, I've never uh, looked back since then. Like, mm. I just absolutely loved it. I had, this, I had an amazing time working in his laboratory. But my husband... <laughs> was not as excited about my working in the laboratory. Mm. And he just kept saying, look, Heather, you're not, you don't have the personality of a scientist. You're oh. like, you're really outgoing and you like talking to people <laughs> and you're really like, that's, you know, like scientists are people who work by themselves mm. and they don't have, they're not like you. And he really did not want me to pursue science. Like, that was not the vision of his That's life. so harsh. <laughs> that he saw. Well, and, you know, you marry somebody who's 19, you never know what, <laughs> what's going to happen to them, like, four years later. So, um, But we, we, ended up, um, we ended up divorcing just as I went to start my PhD in Pittsburgh. Mm. Uh, and then I learned about bacteriophages and, you know, never looked back. <laughs> so it's been... It's been interesting, but, but I, um, there are all sorts of ways of being a scientist. Mm -hmm. And I am often, I think when I'm looking through the literature, I'm so pleased that somebody has done something that I would not want to have done. <laughs> so I'm, I think that there's a lot of room for different types of people in science mm -hmm. and that whatever the personality is or whatever the gifts are, like, I don't think everybody has to do science communication. Mm -hmm. I think it's probably better that not everybody does. <laughs> um, and that's okay. Like, but I think, um, yeah, I think there's a lot of room. I think it takes a village. <laughs> As I often walk around university departments and really appreciate the characters that you meet. And I'm just very glad that they're in science and not, I don't know. On the streets. In retail or something. <laughs> I want that character yeah, I've, uh, you know, figuring I've, out how wasp brains work. Yeah, exactly. You know, this I've is where they belong. All sorts of different interesting characters in science. Mm. I've had more than one um, male that I've worked with take the... Um, the implicit bias test online <laughs> to see what their <laughs> subconscious biases might be. I've had more than one male colleague who I've had take the um, autism spectrum or the Asperger's spectrum mm -hmm. uh, test to see whether they may or may not be a little bit on the more Asperger's More than one, I reckon there's real one. So, you know, like I'm, I'm really glad that that those other colleagues that I have are also here and doing their thing and, and mm. I hope that they're having as good a time as I am. <laughs> and hopefully 
in this podcast, we're showing a diversity of personalities and, and people behind the science. And that's, that's awesome. the whole idea. It's really fun to, to have a chat, James. <laughs> well, thanks so much for coming on. If people want to check out your research and find out more about what you do, you have a blog and a research website, right? Yes. So um, we have a, the students in my phage hunt um, class blog on microbial press at a at a blog that's just called Phage Hunt NZ. Mm-hmm. Um, that's NZ for those of you who are not I also blog occasionally, and some students help me blog at um, this microbial life, also mm-hmm. on micro- on um, WordPress. Our research website is www.microbial evolution at massey.ac.nz I guess it's dot massey.ac. If you Google Heather Hendrickson Massey, yeah. <laughs> that's the first thing and that comes up. We're on Twitter. Um, I'm on Twitter at um, Dr. HHNZ again. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm around. If people have questions, they should write to me. All right. Thanks a lot. If you want to check out more in situ science podcasts we're on in situ science.com and on twitter with the handle at in situ science heather that was wonderful thank you so much for coming <laughs> thank you <James. laughs> all right and we'll see you all next time on the podcast <laughs>